Hello, I am Nancy Lynn Westfield, Director of the Wabash Center. Welcome to Dialogue on Teaching, a Silhouette Interview. The Silhouette Conversations are sparked from a list of standardized questions. We have the good fortune to hear firsthand from teaching exemplars about their teaching and teaching life. Today, I had the good fortune of being with Dr. Elizabeth Condi Frazier. Thank you, Dr. Condi Frazier, for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting would you, me. Would you please introduce to our listeners your organization and tell us about its mission and scope? Absolutely. The Association for Hispanic Theological Education is an organization that networks um, Bible institutes, seminaries, colleges, uh, and other entities that are doing both formal and informal theological education in the Latina community. And what we do is uh, help these different organizations to collaborate, to co-create, so that we can come to excellence in theological education in our community. So, and the Wabash Center recently um, is glad to be in partnership with you, right? So um, I'm very happy that um, our collegiality and our friendship over the many, many years continues um, and that we can, as the Wabash Center, support the good work that your organization is doing. So thank you. Thank you for that opportunity. It will allow us to definitely work on the side of teaching excellence as we create teachers for teachers in that project. That's right, that's right. So let's get started with our questions. Question one, uh, Dr. Condi Frazier, when you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a pastor. Wow. Uh, by the time I was seven, I knew that. Mm -hmm. um, but I also loved teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, when I went to school, I came home and I taught my sister, who was younger, everything I had learned that day. Uh -huh. So by the time my sister went to kindergarten, um, she was bored. <laughs> that's it, that's it. But go back to the pastor part. How did, how did you, what was your awareness that you wanted to be a pastor? You know, it's interesting. I'm not sure of uh, how to talk about it, like an awareness Per se, I was coming out of a meeting with my mother in church, and another woman came up and asked me what I wanted to be, and I told her I wanted to be a pastor. She told me women aren't pastors, they become missionaries. She gave my mother a book about a missionary to read to me. My mother read the book to me, and she asked me, so what do you think? Mm -hmm. And I said, that's a nice story. I really like it, but I'm not going to be a missionary. I'm going to be a pastor. Um, I had a sense as I was listening to the story that there were things that this uh, woman in the story did that didn't appeal to me, that it wasn't what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So by the time I was nine, I was also writing um, what I thought were little books, right? Um, in both English and Spanish, I knew that it was important to be bilingual. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was writing um, little books like, uh, Who is God? Um, really, right? So I think about it now and I go, oh my goodness, how did I do that? Um, so these were my passions and um, I just sort of worked with them. My grandmother was a woman who uh, started uh, after school centers before there were after school centers. Mm -hmm. And she, whenever she ran into something that she couldn't help a child with, she would say to me, come over here and help him or help her do X, Y, or Z. 
And um, she would give me a few tips on how it's important to understand how the listen to the person and see how it is that they're figuring it out first and where it is that things don't work. So she had a she was a teacher par excellence Mm -hmm. and um, she had me doing this with her. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't have a choice. I just had to do it. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, (laughs) those of us who are um, immigrants, when we're in the classroom, we teach. Uh, teachers don't always know how to relate to the child who's coming. And we're given that responsibility. Uh, we don't get paid, but that's the responsibility that we have as immigrant children. That's our work. Mm-hmm. So we do those kinds of things. But I think that what I liked about pastoring was the preaching piece. I liked um, public speaking. Um, I liked helping so I saw pastors doing that, and I and I uh, enjoyed watching people in leadership. So I think that those are the things that appealed to me. And teaching was a huge part of pastoring uh, in the Latina church. Mm-hmm. Next question. And you might, you might have started down this road, but the next question is, um, who was proud of you when you became a teacher? So in your case, I mean, you started teaching as a child even. So, you know, pick, pick whichever point of... I am now a teacher. Who was proud of you when you became a teacher? Um, my entire family, except for my father, I, I lived in an extended family and everyone was involved in teaching in Sunday school, except for my grandmother and my father. Um, so we would sit down Saturday night and prepare our lessons and prepare video, uh, not videos, um, I'm thinking in Spanish, recordings of things like if it was Noah's Ark, we did all kinds of animals. Everybody had an animal that they did, and we put it on this recording for the kids, you know, all of that. Because mm-hmm. we couldn't afford to buy the full kit of the Sunday school. So we created uh, mm-hmm. what would have come in the kit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember that my aunt was putting something together. I was in the second grade. And, uh, you know, the family talked to each other about what were they, they were doing. And I told her, I said, that won't work. This is what's going to work better. Um and she was teaching fourth grade. So she looked at me and she said, Nena, which is a term of endearment, right? Little girl, but it's a term of endearment. It's, it's not belittling you. And she goes, Nena, that's a really good idea. I really like that. She goes, uh, why don't you help me teach? And so um, she would always include me in the preparations of things. And um, she acknowledged, recognized uh, my gifts in that area. Um, who has influenced your teaching for the better? Um, at different points, different people. Um, my mother was an excellent teacher. Uh, she asked questions and she had an art for asking questions. And she taught me about that. And she taught me why questions are important. And basically it's, be- it's because of how questions empower people to discover themselves. Um, my colleague, Frank Rogers at Claremont School of Theology was also an excellent teacher. Um, he was great at creating groups where people could teach each other, could, um, come up with, uh, pieces that were important around social justice and how those should come before us. Um, he was very good at bringing different cultures to talk to each other as well. Um, And later on, when he was doing more with the area of spiritual development, um, I learned how to engage 
persons of different faiths in the same uh, group around issues of spiritual development and how and what that meant to a variety of people from many different uh, religions. Uh, it was a very diverse uh, student body. Mm-hmm. And the students, I have to tell you, the students taught me. Because you listen to what it is that they need, you listen to their protesting, and um, you learn from them. What has surprised you about teaching or the teaching life? How deep your own life has to be in the area of spirituality and in the area of learning. Uh, In spirituality, uh, for me, the relational is a very important part of what spirituality is about. It's central. So um, what it means to really listen and to hold withhold judgment. Um, I grew in terms of my own biases, uh, recognizing those, uh, working with those. I grew in terms of um, learning the different silences that are necessary in a classroom, uh, both on my part and the part of the students, so that we can cultivate silence as a way of teaching and learning. What's a favorite nickname by which you were called by a loved one? Oh, (laughs) that's interesting. I think... um, my husband has a lot of different uh, versions of my name. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Lizard Beth, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Beefy, um, Eli Zabbitt. Um, mm-hmm. He'll use any version of that. And I know mm-hmm. that um, it's a playful time. It's a time to be intimate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's lovely. Um, what profession other than teaching would you like to attempt? I think it would be something in the area of anthropology. Um, There's a social scientist in me for sure. Uh I can see that. And um, so anthropology, the study of cultures and... uh, becoming uh, immersed in them um, and not only to learn, but to help persons um, value themselves Uh and better their communities. I think a good anthropologist should be able to do that, Uh which is why I enjoy doing participatory action research Uh um, or participatory research when I can't fully engage uh, in the action piece. But anthropology just takes you deeper into the richness of cultures and um, why people engage and do the things that they do and what it means when colonization um, robs one of so much uh, land as a part of culture, language, etc. All of those pieces just um, fascinate me. Mm-hmm. The stories, the music, the mm, the, the children's games, the folklore, all that. Just all rich, that. rich, rich, yeah. Um, do you enjoy writing in longhand? And if so, what is your preference of ink pen or writing utensil? 
<laughs> yes, I do enjoy writing in longhand, and it's not because I'm adverse to technology. I use technology a great deal, but what writing in longhand does for me is that the contact of the pen to the paper allows something deep inside of me to flow. Mm. So the pen has to be a pen that doesn't get stuck on the paper. It has to be a flowing pen. There's not like a particular one because, you know, they've kept con- they've kept changing pens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has to be one that flows. Um, and it has to be one that allows me to write in an organized fashion, which means I can write small with it. Mm-hmm. So it can't be a fat pen. It has to be a, a fine point, but some fine points get stuck in the paper. But it has to be, so it has to flow. Those are more characteristics than a type of pen, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I love that um, people that we're interviewing all have an answer to that question. Like we all know like what pens we like. So I think I, I love that. Okay, next. What's your superpower? What do you mean by superpower? Uh, I, you can't ask the interviewer. <laughs> what? I, can, I know a couple of your superpowers, but you you tell me and I'll tell you if you're right. <laughs> well, I'm going to name two. Okay, go ahead. Um, storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it, it, it can help people to imagine differently, right? And and you can be funny, and uh, I think laughter and humor are important. Um, the other would be prayer. Mm. Um, it's been so important for me to uh, have prayer uh, central to my life mm. as a way of um, learning humility for the work that I do. And prayer is not just you know where you ask for things. My mother taught me it was um, bad manners. It was rude to say amen and walk away. She said, a prayer is a conversation that goes two ways. And um, it's not just a conversation that's only about you. That's very selfish. So it's a conversation about listening. Um, She taught me to sit down for a half hour. And I was this really wiry kid for a half hour just to listen. Mm-hmm. And she said that was part of prayer. So it's essential to my being able to discern, to my finding wisdom for how I organize a class, uh, how I listen during that class, so that we can generate knowledge together rather than just my uh, imposing what I know. So it's prayer that um, helps me to do the kind of listening that that entails. Can I say a superpower? Excuse me? Can I say a superpower of yours? Okay. Can I offer one? You have the ability to say challenging, difficult things in very loving ways, which is oftentimes off-putting to the person you're challenging. (laughs) So you you have this amazing ability um, to say to people, uh, prophetically even, the kinds of changes that need to happen in the world without alienating that person or dehumanizing those people. And I think that's a superpower. I have often admired it. Thank you, Lynn. I yeah. I don't know that I would have seen myself that way. Many mm-hmm. times I... Mm-hmm. Um, 
I go to bed feeling guilty, like, oh, God, God, did I need to say this or what have you. So I'm glad that the love shows. Yeah, 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 it does. It did, it does. Yes, it absolutely does. Um, Next question. Next question. Remember, I'm going down my list. What's your favorite cuss word? Oh, um, the one that I say the most. I guess it's the sugar honey iced tea one. (laughs) It comes comes quickly to me. Mm -hmm. And if I feel bilingual on that day, it would be a kind of... um, uh, an equivalent, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, you know, the kind of thing you say in frustration or even the kind of thing that you say when you're giving force to what you want to mm-hmm. say, not necessarily as a curse, but they give force mm-hmm. to what you're saying, mm-hmm. which is the word coño in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, how have you survived certain violences in teaching? Um. By thinking before I speak in that moment Mm -hmm. Um, and by not letting it go, but insisting on addressing it uh, in the moment and getting people to think about, you know, I'm going to give you a chance here to rethink this because I don't think that's really what you wanted to do or say, but this is how this is coming forth. Um, I want you to take a few moments to think about that mm-hmm. and uh, come back and address this. I think people also need time to not feel like they're put on the spot or on the defensive, but so that they can sort of recapitulate, they can sort of, you know, rethink. Um, that gives people the benefit of the doubt that, you know, you're having a bad day or um, you felt really frustrated about this, or for some reason, this is really pushing your inner buttons and you can think about what just happened to you in that moment. Because I think that when we perpetuate uh, a kind of violence, that we are not at our best. Mm-hmm. And that uh, when if I perpetuate violence toward you, I'm really doing it to myself as well. There's something that um, just cuts against the grain of who I am as a person because we weren't created for violence. And it cuts against the grain of my own soul. So I like people to have an opportunity to think about what that means. If it's um, physical violence, you don't get the chance to do that um, all the time. Uh, You need to uh, find a safe space for yourself very quickly. And not norm, norm, normalize it, not say this is, and, and it, there is physical violence. We need to say to our listeners, there is and continues to be moments of physical violence for many of us in our own classrooms and in the teaching life, yeah. even, in, even in our um, profession. Absolutely. So, people, so that's what you're talking about. You're not talking about in the street or in the grocery store. You're, where you're clear that you're still talking about your own teaching and teaching life. Absolutely. Yeah. We're talking, and we're talking not only about you know a seminary or a classroom. We're talking about you know there's a lot of teaching we do in the church, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, it happens there too. Yes. Yes. Next question: What healings have you witnessed or received in teaching or the teaching life? Um, I'm going to describe one 
we I was using some uh, theater of the oppressed uh, techniques. There were students in my class who had been through um, war. Uh, we were reading, we were doing readings uh, where the authors were speaking about that type of violence and so forth. But it was obvious, and my students, you know, went back to check out the the author, and it was obvious that the author themselves had not been through a war, but was speaking about. And uh, the students said, the knowledge we need is not here. So um, I listened to them. We let go of that reading. And in the process of looking for other readings, that would be more apropos, we did some theater of the oppressed pieces. When we were doing that, uh, there was a student who had been an oppressor being in, an, in a position to be an oppressor, not necessarily in a war situation, but just to be an oppressor. And because that student had to play the part of a victim, and of course, I didn't know any of this, right? But they had to play the part of a victim. That student came, uh, we processed what happened uh, after each technique. And that student said, uh, with tears, with great um desperation almost, I need to go. I need to go back to my country. I this is this is what I and my family perpetrated against indig indigenous peoples. And I have to go back and make this right. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to see me for a couple of weeks. Please pray for me. I have to go and fix this. And uh, this person went back to their country, sought out uh, the families that they had uh, done this injustices against. And um, it was a Sakia story. Mm -hmm. It was a Sakia story. They um, built homes for them, gave them land uh, from their from his inheritance um, and tried to pay back the years of service and um, unpaid uh, salary and tried to give them dignity. Mm -hmm. um, that was a, of an immense healing. It's remarkable. You should write that story. Anyway. I need the I need the yeah. student's permission. Yeah. Yeah. Well okay. Okay. Next question. Uh what have you enjoyed most about the teaching life? Creating together. Mm -hmm. It's very generative, you know, in a classroom. You ask questions, they ask you questions, you go back and forth, you teach each other new languages. Um I remember a Tongan student saying, there's, there's, there's no better word than this. And he gave us the word fotongia. And we were like, okay, so what does that mean? Like describe it because there's no real translation. And because of that, we started a glossary of words that we borrowed from each other's languages that meant things that we couldn't translate, but that perfectly described what we needed to hear and know. It was about knowledge, what we needed to know about certain categories of things that we were exploring. And so I and truly enjoy that generative, you know, mm -hmm. those generative moments and so forth, that openness that that happens and everyone jumps in and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And the humor, I, I, you know, we have funny moments. Um, if you create trust, um, trust makes for a space where people feel safe enough that they could play around and, mm -hmm. um, and that's that's always a great thing. 
Nice. Last question. Um, at the conclusion of your teaching career and a long time from now, um, <laughs> what what miracles will you have performed? I think there's no greater miracle than transformation. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that I perform it, but um, I see myself more as a facilitator for uh, people's spirit, uh, the best of who they are, and for the Holy Spirit to enter into a space and make something happen that surprises everybody. And that brings all of us to a point where uh, we realize there's revelation. We realize new things in that moment. We submit to that revelation and we explore it. And that allows us to be brave enough to walk in the direction that that revelation is pointing us in. Mm -hmm. And um, that usually happens when we've already had some level of relationship with one another, enough to be able to hold each other as we explore new things, because we can't fully live new pieces, transformative pieces, unless we have one another as a community. You don't just do that as an individual. We need community to be able to do that. So I would say um, I've been a, trans, uh, a facilitator for transformation to surprise us. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Condi Frazier, I very much appreciate um, your your example, your um, just your warmth and kindness, right? This work, the, the work that you do is difficult. Um, and yet you've been doing it for a long time. So thank you. Thank you so much, Lynn. It's been great to um, hear your questions and answer them. There have been uh, questions that have helped me to reflect in this moment. Thank you mm -hmm. for the gift. Thank you. Um, to our listeners, the Wabash Center website is the place. Look on our website for information about our cohort groups, workshops, colloquies, roundtables information about our educational resources, including our journal on teaching, our blogs, and an entire array of podcasts. Look on our website also for our re-granting program. A special thanks to sound engineer, Dr. Paul Myrie, and podcast producer, Rachel Mills. The music which frames this silhouette podcast is the original composition of Paul Myrie. Wabash Center for more than 28 years is exclusively funded by Lilly Endowment Incorporated. And we are out. How was that, Paul? Mm -hmm.